Women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen, on, off, and around the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Kathleen Biggins. Kathleen has lived in the Princeton area for almost 20 years. Her professional background is in advertising and journalism, but I asked her to talk with us today about her nonprofit work because it's based in Princeton and it both informs and draws upon one of the university's academic priorities, and that's environmental studies. Kathleen is the co-founder and president of a group called the Sea Change Conversations. Her team has grown from just four members in 2014 into a nationally recognized group that fosters productive and, most importantly, nonpartisan discussions about climate change. Kathleen, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Can we start by uh, having you tell us how you got interested in the issue of climate change from the beginning? Sure. I am a member of a garden club, a local garden club, and I was sent down in 2006 to a national conference on environmental issues down in Washington, D.C. that was put on by the National Association. And it's um, a nonpartisan conference that talks about things like clean water and protecting plants and um, things that I think all of us would agree are important. And one of the topics that they brought up at that point was climate change. And they had brought in some outside experts. I think we had a general, we had a business leader that were not your normal suspects. And they were talking about climate change, not necessarily solely as an environmental issue, but as one that would impact our economy and our national security. And it really snapped my head head back because that wasn't a message that I was hearing in the media mm-hmm. and wasn't a message that I was hearing from my peers and colleagues back in Princeton. And so you came back to Princeton and did what? Well, I think I was very annoying at cocktail parties and dinner parties for quite a while. Um, And people, I think, more or less felt I was a bit like Chicken Little, Mm -hmm. that this was not such a big deal. And quite honestly, I had a very busy full life with young children, and I kind of put my concerns aside. I was still kind of watching it, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really move on it in any way until Hurricane Sandy hit. And after that, seeing the devastation my own community had experienced and hearing from scientists that climate change had exacerbated that natural disaster, I I was kind of alarmed. And I wanted to understand the risk. And I went back down to that conference in Washington, D.C., and I was just stunned because almost every delegate who was attending had their own weather-weirding story, whether it was a delegate from Houston who had um, ex- where had, they had experienced a drought in an area that is usually very wet and swampy and had lost so many of their specimen trees, or the, the organizer of the event who had to flee her home because of a rash of unusual wildfires out west. Everyone had a story, and it just made me wonder. So I came back and began to educate myself by going to conferences, by taking online courses, to coming and attending events here at at Princeton. And the more I learned, um, the more alarmed I became. And I I should say that I really try to go to non-green sources, not just looking at this through an environmental lens, but again, going up to the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit to see how business leaders and energy leaders were viewing this issue, or going to learn about how our harbors and coastlines are beginning to become prepared and what was ahead. So trying to widen my lens 
so that I wasn't just getting information from the normal sources. What you're describing is business interest in the issue of climate change. And I think that a lot of the times the American electorate doesn't see it as a business issue so much as a partisan issue. Right. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but But I think that if you really look at climate change in a 360 view. If you you step away from the partisanship and step away from um, what is only happening in your own backyard and look at how it influences the things we care about most, it's shocking because climate change has a direct impact on our economy and our jobs. It has a direct impact on our personal security and our health. And it has a direct impact on our exposure to geopolitical instability, which we experience as terrorism, chaos, refugee flows. Those are the three things that Americans say are most important to them when they go to vote. And climate change profoundly and negatively impacts all three. And that's one of the things that our organization helps explain. So when did you come to that recognition that that you were going to be able to um, that, that you saw these these um, avenues of communications, if I can call it that, you just named those three areas that are such key concern to people. At what point did you say, I have something to say about this? You know, I may not be a climate scientist per se, but I need to um, help package this in a way that's that, that that people understand. So when I came back from that second conference, and I and I, as I said, became much more educated on this. I was literally waking up in the middle of the night. I was like, this is such a big threat. And my loved ones and my peers and my colleagues have no idea. I felt like we were on a runaway train and nobody wanted to hear that it was a runaway train. So the question is, how do you kind of wake people up to this risk without turning them off? Sure, scaring them. Well, no, but also because it was kind of a taboo subject, it becomes so politicized. It was something that wasn't even talked about in polite company in many circles. It's how do you broach this very difficult topic? And I realized that I, oh, this sounds, I, I had an obligation, though, in a way. If, if you see a danger ahead and your loved ones don't, you have an obligation to raise it with them, even if it's uncomfortable. So I decided that we would try to see if we could create a speaker series that would kind of recreate what had activated me. Mm-hmm. And I called on some other like-minded women in mm-hmm. this um, community, and together we decided to bring in all sorts of outside experts that were experts in business, uh-huh. in um, on Wall Street, on the general economy, in national security. Steve Pakala, who mm-hmm. is the former head of the Princeton Environmental Institute and is just a luminary in this area, uh, came and presented as one of our speakers and explained this new science of attribution, how scientists are able to see a natural disaster and then ascertain whether, and if so, how climate change made it more likely to happen or more deadly, how it exacerbated it. And in bringing in these outside experts and inviting people who are not self-selecting to come, we began a conversations in areas that had not allowed them before. Mm -hmm, mm And we began to, I think, change the understanding within our own community of Princeton. Yeah. I think that, I mean, certainly from what I've heard from the community, that's very, very true. That conversation really, you know, not to use too many plant metaphors, but took root and grew <laughs> in a very, um, you know, healthy way. And again, nonpartisan way. 
So I want to come back to, again, what you did next. You put together a primer uh, that then explains much of the science of climate change, uh, much of the risk of climate change, and you decided to take it on the road, basically. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, even though we felt that our our speaker series, and I think we've had 17 speakers so far, um, was being very effective, we, we recognized that there was still kind of a lack of literacy on the science, that people didn't really understand the basics of how greenhouse gases work or why it could be such a danger to us ahead. Mm-hmm. And we also realized that while our, our speakers were incredibly um, knowledgeable about their specific areas, that most of our viewers weren't coming to every single speaker. Sure. So they were getting deep dives and a sliver of the issue. And they weren't really getting that 360 view. And quite honestly, I was frustrated with my own garden club because despite all of my um, attempts at trying to wake them up in a gentle way, I felt that every time I jumped up, their eyes would glaze over and were like, when is she going to sit down? <laughs> so I decided to try to create a communications vehicle that would help bring people along, that would start off with those who really didn't believe and, and move them through how we know it's tr- really happening, um, how we know that humans are influencing it, what the scientists say, what is the consensus within that community, how do we evaluate the potential dangers, and then how do we know whether there's hope in addressing it? And quite honestly, I based that off of uh, some research that that was presented by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication that said those are the five questions that most Americans had. And we use that to structure the primer because, again, it kind of touches everybody wherever they start and hopefully moves them further along that continuum of understanding the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, so you began to speak. Where, where do you speak and, and how did that unfold? So it was so interesting. Um, After presenting it to uh, local garden clubs, they were so enthusiastic that they asked us to bring it to the National Association. They asked us then to open the national conferences uh, two years in a row because they said it set the stage for all of the other speakers that were coming after us and and helped people understand about climate change um, in a nonpartisan, non-confrontational manner. And as you can imagine, a national garden club has people from all over the countries and people with very different views on something like climate change. Um, But when we presented it there, we got a standing ovation. Yeah, so I heard. Which was just kind of an unusual experience for a a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) Uh, And from that, we got invitations from different garden associations around the country to come bring this message to their community. And sometimes it's to the club itself, but oftentimes it's to their whole community. You know, for example, in Seattle, we presented at the Seattle Aquarium, Uh which was fabulous because you had the big fish tank with all the fish looking down onto the (laughs) stage as you present. You're like, I'm doing this for you, too. <laughs> but it's been an incredible experience to really. I guess we've been to 25 states now. I guess we've shared this with almost 5,500 people. Wow. Um, yeah. And the, what kind of what kind of reaction do you get? You're invited by somebody who's clearly interested, but I think the whole point of your your outreach is that you're trying to reach people who are skeptical to start with. So what what kind of questions do you get? What kind of feedback do you get? Well, I think um, the the way we judge it most is the fact that almost everywhere we go, we get invited 
mm-hmm. to come back or to go somewhere else that, that a member who heard us is associated with. So mm-hmm. we presented in Nantucket, and we got you know presentations to come present in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, we presented in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and we got a call from someone whose sister was in the audience and said, I've heard about you. Would you come to our association in Virginia? Mm-hmm. So that grassroots growth is really validating that the message is indeed resonating. Uh, I think also the fact that we are now getting invited into some pretty conservative places that we have been vetted enough um, that they understand that we're non-confrontational. We're all about the science. We don't see this as a political issue, but one that's a human issue. And uh, we are now going to places like Monroe, Louisiana, Jackson, Mississippi, Augusta, Georgia, Columbia, South Carolina, and we just got invited to Houston, Texas. That's really neat. That's fantastic. So what what do you think it, about you that makes it, as you say, non-confrontational and easier to penetrate what has up till now been such a partisan issue? Well, I think, um, again, it's a team. It's a team of us. There's 13 of us now who are um, supporting this initiative. And I think one of the things that we work really hard to do is to seem and be credible and trustworthy messengers. So when we go down to a Charlotte, North Carolina, or a Columbia, um, South Carolina, they often say, wow, you look and sound just like us, right? You, you You went to the same types of colleges we went to. You have the same types of interests that we have. Um, sometimes we've summered or been in the same places. And so all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's changed who they believe cares about this issue. Um, so many people thought that climate change was just something for people who were very environmentally minded, the greenies, the leftists. And in fact, here's somebody who is definitely not that, saying this is an important issue that we need to understand as well. I think that's part of it. I think also the fact that we go to them, um, we go into their associations, their rotary clubs, their business clubs, their investment clubs, their country clubs, their garden clubs, and they are comfortable there with their peers. They don't feel attacked. And so when we come in and in a very nonpartisan, sometimes even with a little bit of humor, Mm -hmm. outlay the science in a very logical way so that it just kind of brings you along so that you begin to think, wow, this is a risk. Even if we don't know 100% of everything that's about it or everything that's coming, shouldn't we be taking it seriously? And so I think it's kind of that combination of trusted messenger, the message and how we craft it, and the fact that we go to them all works together. Yeah, no, it sounds very compelling. Um, I'm puzzled. Uh, we take it as a given how, how partisan and how divided the country is over this issue right now, but it wasn't always so. How, how did it get to be so partisan, do you think? Well, scientists um, who were active in the past have shared with us that um, before 2008, they felt there was really kind of a begrudging acceptance of the fact that climate change was happening across the political spectrum. And if you think about it, George W. Bush had introduced a cap-and-trade solution in 2001. Uh, Newt Gingrich, the congressional uh, leader from Georgia, had endorsed a cap-and-trade approach in 2007. There had been multiple bipartisan bills introduced every single year. And in 2008, it was on both parties' presidential platforms. Wow, I didn't know that. Different ways of addressing it, Mm -hmm. but agreeing that it needed to be addressed. But when Al Gore, the former vice president, won the Nobel Peace Prize for his movie about the risks of climate change and inconvenient truth, it was a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. Scientists say that at that point, 
political operatives in both parties Mm -hmm. began to see it as a wedge issue and a way to whip up their bases. And the news media really began to cover it much more as a culture war issue, as a way to whip up their ratings. And suddenly we had something that was radioactive and, and a new litmus test for what makes a good liberal or a good conservative. That's really interesting. So it's not so much how Al Gore phrased it or that it was Al Gore, uh, but it was how it was kind of presented and communicated. I'm always struck on how communications are such an important part of this issue. Well, yes, but I do think it had something to do that it was Al Gore. I think he was a a person that evoked a lot of, of negativity on the right. And for him to be the face of this... Um, caused a lot of pushback. And for the left to embrace it as exuberantly as they did caused some of that pushback. Which makes me wonder about this current election cycle then. Um, Is there a way to dial back some of that partisanship? So I'm intrigued now to watch the Green New Deal Mm -hmm. because when it first came out, my heart sank because I was like, oh no, we were just beginning to get um, more Republicans on board. We were just beginning to get the Climate Solutions Caucus in, in the House of Representatives. We were just beginning to have a softening. And here comes this hard-hitting, will it again put a wedge in us, which is exactly what Mitch McConnell, um, the, is the head of the Senate, is trying to do. But I think it's actually doing something else at the same time. Yes, it could be a wedge amongst some groups, but it's also pulling everybody along so that others who were now worried that this more aggressive form of regulation could come into play are embracing market um, approaches like the carbon tax or fee and rebate, which is a conservative approach using market uh, principles to address this that has been endorsed by so many, you know, James Baker, George Schultz, Hank Paulson is perhaps the, the, the most visible trio, but it was also endorsed in the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages by all of the living members of the Federal Reserve um, chairs and others. And so it could still become a wedge, but it could also be the thing that scared everybody to the table. Mm-hmm. So I'm holding off judgment until I see how it plays off. So what kind of language do you think m- might be helpful um, amongst the um, the candidates that are running for office right now to avoid the backlash, to, to build on whatever possibilities there are for bipartisan support around bipartisan support around solutions. Well, I think um, one of the ways to do it is to take it out of the realm of the environmental and into the realm of the economic and. You don't need people to raise up their hands and say, I believe, on climate change to get them to support smart policies. If you take a look at uh, things like supporting renewable energy or taxing carbon as a pollutant, there is almost universal support across party lines. If you look at where the jobs are growing with wind energy and solar energy, so many of them are in rural red states Mm -hmm. and they're playing an amazingly important role in those economies. So if you can get away from being doctrinaire and demanding allegiance to one way or another and instead say this is a human problem with lots of different ways of approaching it to mitigate it, to adapt, to come up with the solutions. We need to do that. That's the beginning. And then, you know what? We have so many different 
laboratories to figure out the right way. But what we need to be doing is investing and innovating and pouring our intention into this area versus putting our heads in the sand and saying it doesn't exist or that it's too big to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'm struck that the, the groups that you talk to, we've, we mentioned this a minute ago, are very often inclined towards skepticism. And I think a lot of the, the, the people who are already committed to the issue of climate change refuse to talk to these groups and, and continue to talk to themselves. I, I, I'm wondering if you have any advice. Where should people go? Where should some of the politicians go to talk to people and, and, and appeal, as you've pointed out, to both their hearts and their, their minds? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because right now we're still in the primary system, right? And the, the primary session, it's it's often more about um, strengthening your base than, than moving to the center and talking to those that may not agree with you. So I would be intrigued if we saw too much of that before the general election. I, I, I think we have to move away from this litmus test. I jokingly say that sometimes it's like asking a Red Sox fan to start cheering for the Yankees because it's been ingrained in us so much that this is an issue for liberals and it's not an issue for conservatives, which is total bunk. Because if you look again at where the jobs are growing, where the economies are booming because of renewable energies, because of pivoting to address this issue, and you look at where some of the great devastation is coming from all of these intensified storms that have been exacerbated by climate change, it's in conservative places. This does not know blue or red. This issue is a human issue. And so I think we need to be aware that the solutions will benefit us all. And if we wait, the cost and the destruction will hurt us all. Sure enough. You end your primer uh, with the concept of hope. I'm wondering if you see hope, uh, where you see hope is perhaps the better way to phrase it for the next five years? Hmm. So I, um, I see hope in that there is such a, a, a major, there are so many major strides within the technological sector. There are so many new things that are coming that are just things that we've never envisioned. Um, right now, there's a new uh, negative emission technology in Switzerland that actually sucks carbon out of the air and can then push it and store it underground. And it replaces 36,000 trees in doing so. Yeah. It's terribly expensive. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's not scalable yet. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we have that technology, think about it. We could actually mine carbon from the air instead of extracting it from the earth if we could figure it out as we yeah. go forward. Um, there's all sorts of things, as we know, new solar panels on our roofs or solar tiles, solar paint, solar windows. There's just so much bubbling out there. But what we aren't doing is supporting it enough. We're not putting in the investment to get the innovation of tomorrow. We're really continuing to spend so much of our energy and our dollars on the fuels of the past instead of following the trends of so many other countries around the world and pivoting towards the future. So what gives me hope is the fact that others are leading the way, mm -hmm. that Americans can catch up if we put our can-do um, hats on, and that we have the ability to mitigate and adapt if we come together. That's, that's encouraging, very encouraging. What, last question. People ask you, I know, at the end of your, your talks, what can I do? And I want to phrase it a little different. What can conservatives do? 
right now in the electorate, people who aren't scientists or innovators or business leaders? What can, what can your average conservative who's concerned about climate change do? Well, we kind of divide it into three parts. And I guess this is true, especially for conservatives, but also for anyone who leaves our primer. And that is, we need to change the understanding and the momentum in this country. We are in a race. We are losing that race. There is no way that we are going to cut emissions to keep ourselves safe unless we make some tough choices, unless we change the way we're doing things. What we need to do is influence our policy leaders Influence our, influence our community and those around us, and demonstrate and lead through personal action, those three areas. So influencing our policy leaders, we can do that at a local level, at our city council, at our mayor, at our state level, and at our federal level. But if you are a conservative, again, because this has been painted as a liberal issue, it's really important you raise your voice and say, this is important to me. My future and my children's future and my grandchildren, it's important to me too. We can do it within uh, ways that fit conservative principles, but we need to act. And interestingly, we know from a lot of really credible sources that Republican lawmakers get the science, but they feel trapped because they feel if they move on it, they will lose in a primary. And they say in, in private that they need cover from their constituents in a, to be able to move. So raising our voices if we're conservative is of paramount importance. And of course, there's so much more leverage we have at the local level, whether it is pushing for renewable energy portfolio or pushing our own town to create smart policies for uh, buying aggregate renewable energy or microgrids or uh, greening up our urban canopy or, or helping to restore our wetlands, because there's all different ways of ameliorating this issue or helping to get ourselves better situated to handle what it's throwing at us. And then lastly, there's so much that we can personally model, whether it's moving towards a more plant-based diet, whether it's buying that electric car, which in many states is the best way to lower your own footprint, and there's so much more fun to drive. <laughs> well, with that, thank you so much, Kathleen Biggins. I really, really appreciate it. Your group is the Sea Change Conversations. I hope people will invite you to their homes uh, or community organizations. And I'd like to also thank uh, Dan Kearns, our audio engineer, and Danielle Alio, who is our producer. I ask our listeners to come back for another wonderful conversation like the one we just had with Kathleen uh, for more Princeton alumni, faculty, and community leaders. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.